but I think it'll be helpful for us to look along in the text as we talk through them. Luke 16. The first question deals with um, what's called the dishonest manager, right there beginning in verse 1. And so the first question from our reading on Monday uh, asked this. It asked you to describe the manager's strategy in dealing with the debtors so that he would have a place to live after losing his job. What did this guy do to kind of hedge his bets a little bit? How would you describe what took place there? Andy. Totally, yeah. If you didn't hear Andy, he said that he cut their debts in half just so he would have a place to live afterwards. So here's kind of what happens. This guy, this dishonest manager, finds out that he's losing his job for just cause, right? It says that he was wasting his manager's possessions there in verse 1. And he thinks to himself, yikes, I'm about to be on the streets without a job here pretty soon. And he starts thinking, well, I'm too weak to dig trenches. I'm too ashamed to go out onto the streets and beg for money. So what am I going to do? And he has like a light bulb moment all of a sudden in which he says, I know. While I still possess some level of like association with my boss, I'm going to go to his debtors and have their debt. So this first guy comes to him and he says, how much do you owe? And he says like a hundred something of wheat, I think. Uh, yeah, verse six. Uh, okay, the first guy owes a hundred measures of oil. And his solution then, he says, quickly take your bill and write 50. He says, pay us half and we'll call it good. Your debt is paid. And if you notice from the footnotes down here, 100 measures of oil is no small sum. Uh, my Bible says that it's about 875 gallons of oil that this guy says, all right, you owe us half of that. Okay. Then the next guy comes and he owes 100 measures of wheat. Again, you can see the conversion down there. It's like 1,200 bushels, a huge amount of wheat. And he says, all right, you owe us 100, take your bill and write 80, call it good. Your debt is paid. And you can imagine that these two guys who had their uh, debts reduced are like, whoa, this is our lucky day. This is pretty awesome, right? But for what reason? What do you think is going to happen, let me ask you, when this dishonest manager is kicked to the curb? What's he going to go do? Yeah, surely he said it. He's going to go to these guys whose debts he reduced, and he's going to say, hey, remember the favor I gave you guys? You owe me one. I need a place to live. I needed something to eat. And more than likely, they're going to welcome him into their home because they know they do owe him one. Now, what attribute is he commended for according to the text? Yes, Diane said being shrewd, and I think that is important because even though he's called the dishonest manager, it's not his dishonesty that he is commended for, right? Because if it is, this kind of leaves us in a bit of a predicament. If we look at his unethical behavior, he went behind his boss's back and reduced the debts, and then we look at Jesus's application, we could be left scratching our heads thinking, wait, is Jesus to be dishonest like this guy was? 
No, 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 that's not at all. He's commended for his shrewdness. In fact, Jesus is going to take this a step further in verse 8, and he's going to make this conclusion. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Shrewd isn't a word we use a whole lot. Uh, We might say he was clever, he was crafty, We might say that the manager was street smart. But Jesus says that the world actually excels in a way that that believers do not in how shrewd they are. And that is the point of this parable, the point that we're supposed to take away from this, because Jesus' conclusion then, after saying that in verse 8, is this. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, on the surface, this verse can be kind of difficult to understand, particularly for me, that word unrighteous wealth. Uh, I looked at it, and it was like, is Jesus saying we should, like, take money that we've stolen and give it to people to make friends with them? That's kind of how I interpreted unrighteous wealth initially. It's kind of hard to discern what that means. But if you look at verse 11, I think that clears it up for us. Jesus continues his teaching in verse 11, and he says, If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? So here we have unrighteous wealth contrasted with true riches, which is likely eternal riches, which makes us think that unrighteous wealth is just our earthly goods. It's just things we possess in this life. It's just a way of describing uh, our money that we've accumulated in this earth, not in a kind of shady way, but just when it stands in contrast to eternity. The wealth we possess in this life is unrighteous. It's fading, actually, as Jesus will say in verse 9. So, now that we know what unrighteous wealth is, this helps us understand verse 9 a little bit more. We could rephrase it. Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by the means of your earthly wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal things. And again, It's still a little bit difficult for us to understand what it is that Jesus is describing. I want us to think about it in terms of the parable. So this dishonest manager made friends for himself, right? By using his position, the resources at his disposal to reduce the debt that was owed to his boss so that he could in turn have somewhere to live after he lost his job, right? And so Jesus is saying in the same way, leverage your resources, your earthly wealth, not to provide for your immediate future, but to provide for your eternity. This is just a theme that Jesus has been teaching over and over and over again in Luke. Maybe we could summarize it by what he said, I think back in chapter 12, lay up treasure in heaven. Use your wealth in this life to prepare for life in the next. And I think we go a little bit further based off a question three here that I had from chapter 16. If unbelievers are prudent in planning for their future, how then should believers plan for eternity? How did you answer that question? Seeing the example that this manager gave us, how should we plan for eternity? Okay. Like Jesus would say, lay up treasure in heaven. 
Certainly. Any particular mindset we should possess? Joanne? Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts before I jump in and maybe clarify what I'm asking here? Yeah, Mike. Okay. I, I'm not sure that's quite what the parable is getting at here. Okay, yeah, that's part of laying up treasure in heaven, right? I even asked you to consider a couple of verses. I didn't include them on the screen here, but uh, from Luke 12 and Mark 10:29, there were some verses you should have looked at that would help you kind of formulate an idea as to what Jesus is describing here. These verses talk about sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus says in Mark, if you forsake your father and mother and houses and lands, you will receive a hundredfold what you have lost. The point that I'm trying to get across is here is that if unbelievers can be shrewd or prudent in planning for their immediate future, can believers not be shrewd and prudent in planning for our eternity? Right? I can't help but think that the dishonest manager from this story would see Jesus as a teaching or instructions that I just listed about sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He would see that and he'd be like, Okay, I know what a good deal is. I know how to be crafty and clever and to leverage my resources now to prepare for my future. And he would do it. He's evidenced that he makes decisions for his future. He would see Jesus' instructions about if you forsake these things in this life, you'll receive a hundredfold. And he'd say, okay, that makes sense. I get it. And my concern is that believers, sometimes we see Jesus' instructions and we're like, I could take it or leave it. I'll give out of my surplus to prepare for my future, but Jesus' instructions to sell all I have and give to the poor, eh. I think Jesus is honing in on this idea. Listen, there is opportunity for us in eternity. There is treasure that we can store that rust can't touch, moths can't touch. He's given us the instructions on how to lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven, and we're not taking advantage of the system that he's described for us. We're being pretty casual about it, is kind of my concern. Remember Jesus said last week from our reading that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions? And there was that uh, rich man who is described as a fool for spending his whole life accumulating so that he could, in his mind, kick back and relax, and that very night, he's killed. And Jesus says, you played the fool. You spent your whole life for this life and missed opportunities to lay up treasure in heaven. I think what Jesus is describing here with this parable about the shrewd manager is to illustrate how believers need to have a mindset that isn't concerned on this life, but use our wealth, our unrighteous wealth, our earthly goods, to leverage that for eternity. These passages of Scripture have been pretty convicting to me, to be honest, these last couple of weeks, as I've thought about my own mindset towards uh, wealth and money, and really considered what it is that Jesus uh, requires of believers. And, yeah, any other questions or comments from this question? We'll move on to part two. John. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Agreed. All right, moving on to the second part, or the second question from chapter 16. Uh, I think it's right at the end of the chapter. Yeah, beginning in verse 19 to the end, we have the story of rich man and Lazarus, pretty well known, particularly for its description of hell, which is horrifying to us. And uh, I think perhaps just a quick read-through makes us think that, and again, I'm not saying that you guys believe this, but I think that the casual person could read this and see that maybe it's just rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven, and that's one of the conclusions of the parable. That is not the case, even though there is this great reversal in fortunes, you might say. Uh, Even the rich man knows that the only way his brothers are going to escape this judgment is if they repent. So I do want to point that out. Lazarus doesn't go to heaven because he's poor, and the rich man doesn't go to hell because he's rich. Repentance is the key here. But the rich man, he's in hell, and he obviously is concerned about the well-being of his brothers. He says, I don't want you guys to come to this place. And he says, hey, send Lazarus. He'll convince them. Resurrect him from the dead and let him go back to my five brothers. And Abraham says this. It's part of the question here. Would the rich man's brothers have been convinced of the truth if Lazarus had been resurrected and sent to them? No, he wouldn't. In fact, the rich man pushes back and says that his brothers need more. They need someone coming back from the dead and then they'll believe. And Abraham's reply has a ring of foreshadowing to it, doesn't it? He says this. Well, let me ask you before I spoil it. What did Abraham say was sufficient witness for them to escape judgment of hell? Jeff. Moses and the prophets. Generally, we could say the scriptures. They have the scriptures. That's enough. And again, (laughs) Abraham's answer has some foreshadowing because he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I said there was some foreshadowing there. How so? In what way does that sound like maybe a little bit of foreshadowing? Neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Bonnie. Totally. Yeah. Think about the other guy named Lazarus, right? When he was raised from the dead, the text says a lot of people believed, but there were some who went straight to the Pharisees and said, did you know Jesus just did this? And the Pharisees get all angry, and it is that very event which prompts them to go murder Jesus. Forward, they're looking for a chance to kill him. Like Bonnie said, think about Jesus' own resurrection. Immediately, the religious rulers are trying to squash what they knew to be true, and they say, uh, tell the people that the soldiers stole the body. Right? What are, what are we realizing from this? That even a sign, a resurrection, is not enough to convince someone of the validity of Christ. We've seen this in our reading. These people come asking for a sign. Jesus, give us a sign. Please, please, please. And Jesus says no. 
One more sign isn't going to tip him over the edge and make, now we believe. According to this passage of Scripture, where would be a good place to start in convincing someone of who Jesus is? The Scriptures. Totally. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. That's enough. Even if someone raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe him. Yeah, and so it reminds us then that the written word of God contains everything we need. It's sufficient in and of itself. And we also know from the scriptures that no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn. This is a work of the Spirit. Only one person can make blind people see. Only one person can turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And even a sign as awesome as a resurrection isn't going to convince people. Um, Yeah, from Luke 17. According to verse 3, what two obligations do Christians have to people who have sinned? Brenda. Yep. Exactly. There's a couple like qualifying remarks. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of difficulties in obeying these instructions. I think I did borrow largely from, uh, I think that book you guys all went through, Pursuing Peace, talks about this verse and uh, being reconciled to people who sin against us. But I said there are some difficulties because how many of us like rebuking people when they've sinned against us? Confrontation does not come naturally to a lot of us, and we're more inclined to say, "Eh, okay. But here from the text, we're seeing if someone sins against us, we do have an obligation to rebuke them. Uh, Even Galatians says that people who are caught in transgressions need to be confronted, albeit graciously, (laughs) that is the key word, do it in a spirit of grace. Uh, I I do want to clarify that sometimes the Bible allows for, as Peter says, love to cover a multitude of sins. Uh, Confrontation isn't always necessary, I think. If that were the case, we'd be confronting each other all the time. Hey, you sinned against me, you sinned against me. There's certainly opportunity for us to say, you know what? My love for you is going to cover your sin in this instance. First Corinthians talks about love doesn't count wrongs done against us. So I think we need to understand that. But fundamentally, it is unloving to let someone just continue down this road of sin and them not be confronted about it. Jesus' second instruction, and if they repent, forgive them. Yes, Cynthia. I think both are probably true. Yeah, I think both are probably true. If they've sinned against you to a point where you cannot fellowship with them without that just event coming up in your mind, certainly you as an individual could rebuke them for the sin they committed against you. But maybe generally, if there's a sin they've committed that is so big that it is hurting their testimony, their effectiveness for Christ, I think you could take it upon yourself to go rebuke them. Yeah, I think that'd be appropriate. Within the guidelines of Galatians, which says to do it graciously, and also considering uh, that log speck principle that Matthew talks about, don't confront someone if you've got the beam in your own eye. Hey, you've got a speck in yours, but you know, you're knocking people over with this two by four that's hitting people. Yeah, 
Yes. I think if it were to, yeah, it, it is difficult. You're right. Again, I think there are some guiding principles that I listed that we would need to kind of filter through. Is this outside of my ability to let love cover this sin? Yeah, you probably need to say something and rebuke them. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Uh, the second instruction Jesus gave is to forgive. This is also difficult for us. We love to see people repaid for their wrongs done against us. Right? If someone offended me, I love for them to be repaid in equal measure for the hurt they caused me. And yet Jesus' instructions are forgive. What general principle, let me ask you, is being communicated by forgiving someone seven times a day? What is the general principle at play here? Jeff? Totally, yeah. Dave? Exactly. I, I think, you know, if we put ourselves in the shoes of someone who has now had to forgive someone six times and they come to us a seventh time in today, we're like, are you, are you really repentant? Come on, like, if you, you, you wouldn't be doing this seven times if you really cared the first time. And, and yet Jesus isn't putting the obligation on us to, like, go Sherlock Holmes on figuring out if someone is repentant or not. He says if they repent, forgive them. L love doesn't count wrongs done against us. It's very much that mindset of forgive repentant people. Don't inquire about if they mean it or not. Yeah, and then to Jeff's point, what truth motivates us to forgive other people? What would you say here? Julia. Totally, yeah. Like you and Jeff said, God has forgiven us so much more. I was hoping that you would recall to mind that parable, I think in Matthew, where there's this guy who's forgiven a significant sum, turns around and can't forgive someone who owes him comparatively less. And the point is, you've been forgiven much, so forgive much. Uh, forgiveness is a whole lot easier when we remember what God has forgiven us of. Also from Luke 17, we're told about these ten lepers who see Jesus and they cry out to him, Jesus, heal us. And as was pointed out to me, Jesus instructs them to go to the priest before he even heals them. It's almost like they're on their way and then they're healed. They're demonstrating this faith, which is commendable. Yet only one leper returns back to Jesus. Why? Sadatu. He was grateful. Yes. And what was unique about his nationality? He was a Samaritan. Yeah, interesting, huh? Because these are like the natural enemies of the Jews. It would have made sense if the Jewish people came back to the Jewish Jesus and said, hey, thanks. But this Samaritan doesn't let the hostility between him and Jewish people get in the way of falling at Jesus' feet and saying, thank you for what you have done for me. What does Ephesians 5.20 teach us about gratitude then? Lisa. Yes, giving thanks always and in all things. I could not help but think that a lot of times we act like these nine other lepers. They did a good thing in crying out to Jesus for help, for provision. A lot of times we cry out to God, hey, I'm in a 
scenario, I need some help. Will you answer my prayers? And yet when God does act, we just kind of take it in stride and say, sweet. My, you know, this is great. My life turned out well and my problems are gone and we just keep going. Life is normal without ever circling back around to give God thanks for the very thing we asked him for. And our ingratitude really uh, demonstrates entitlement, like we somehow deserved this favorable behavior. Not at all. The Samaritan, of all people, gives us an example of how to respond when our prayers are answered. Worship. Be grateful. Say, God, this could not have been done apart from you, from your sovereign intervention in my life. Uh, I think their model is very helpful for us. All right, from Luke 18. We have another parable here that Jesus gives uh, about prayer, much like we had last week. And this time, instead of a neighbor getting woken up by his neighbor looking for some bread, it is a widow and a judge. And it would be hard to get two people further apart on the spectrum of wealth or equality in this time than a widow and a judge. Here's a widow, one of the most helpless people in society, unable to secure justice on her own. Then you have this judge who is self-described as not fearing God, not fearing man. He's just in it for himself. And so the only person that can help this widow is disinterested in her plight. According to verse 1, why did Jesus tell the parable in verses 2 to 6? For what reason? Yeah, Bonnie. Yeah, so that they would pray and not lose heart. And even by stating that, Jesus is kind of putting his finger on the tendency that we have to stop praying, to lose heart, right? And this parable is supposed to encourage or inspire us. Keep praying. Why did the judge finally give justice to the widow in this story? Joanne. Yeah, yeah, you kind of get the impression. Every single day, this woman's at the courthouse, give me justice, and he says no. Next day, give me justice, no. I mean, who knows how long this goes on, but finally he's like, oh my goodness, I gotta get this woman off my doorstep. I'll just give her justice to quiet her, right? Does God only answer our prayers so that we will stop bothering him? No. And that's the point of this parable. Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. That's his instruction. So let's go back and look at what the unrighteous says. Verse 4, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus is contrast then in verse 7 is, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, right? God is absolutely unlike this unrighteous judge. 
for a couple of reasons. One, this judge kind of happened upon justice. It was very self-motivated in a roundabout way. He did do what was right, but for selfish reasons. God is perfectly just. It's his nature. It's in his character. He can't be anything but just, right? And, and, and uh, for a second reason, a point of difference between uh, God and this judge is that his relationship to the widow is really just obligatory. They both live in the same town. He's her judge. When justice is served, they're never going to see each other again. As this parable calls us God's elect, as the previous parable pointed out God's fatherhood to us, we have a totally different relationship to God than this widow had to the judge. We're his son. We're his elect, his chosen, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Do you not think he wants to give justice to those who are crying out, often. And I do want to clarify some remarks I made last week about the parable of uh, the neighbor in bed getting asked about the loaves. Uh, I think it's possible that you left me talking about that, thinking that we should not be persistent in prayer, period. I think in my eagerness to explain maybe a different reading of that parable, you heard me say, don't be persistent. It's wrong. I don't think that's the case. I think even from this text of scripture, Jesus is saying, keep praying. Keep crying out for justice. It's not wrong to be persistent in prayer. I think the general point that I'm trying to make, though, is this. These parables are a contrast, not a parallel. And so we should never read this parable and conclude that I can pray every single day for what I want and kind of build up this annoyance against God and bother him to the point where he says, okay, I'll give you what you want. We should not read this parable and think that. That is not our relationship to God. He's our father. He wants to execute justice on our behalf. Now, there is a bit of a, an oxymoron here because this justice that he's describing is the return of the Son of Man that he describes as coming speedily. And yet here we are from our perspective. It's been 2,000 years. How is that speedy? Jesus still hasn't come back, right? Well, I think we need to remember that God's time frame is not our time frame. Peter says, uh, for God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, right? So from God's perspective, this is happening speedily. Maybe the bigger point is this, that persistent prayer is a discipline in faith. Look at the last sentence from this parable. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Reworded, are there going to be people who've just given up hope and said, you know what, I prayed for justice for, you know, a couple years and God never answered, so I'm just a product of my circumstances. I've given up hope that God's ever going to give us justice. No, 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 no. The point of this persistent prayer is to demonstrate faith that God does hear us, that when he comes back, it will be an answer to our prayers for justice to, for his elect. I hope that makes sense. And I think that when we do pray persistently, it should not be with the mindset, as I just described, of this widow to the judge of just bothering God. But yes, we can pray for things. 
but with the Spirit of God. You are my Father. You love me. You hear me. And I trust whatever answer you choose to give me, even if it's contrary to the, what I'm asking you right now. Uh, I think the Apostle Paul had to learn that when he was praying for the thorn to be removed, and God said, you know what? You prayed for this three times, but you're going to get a different answer than the one you wanted. And uh, I think we need to understand that with our persistent prayer as well, that it doesn't guarantee that God gives us exactly what we want, as we see from this parable. Also from Luke 18, another parable about prayer. Jesus, again, tells us the reason for this parable. For the previous one, it was so that they might always pray and not lose heart. Verse 9 tells us that he tells this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector because some trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he launches into this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. How would you describe how the Pharisee prayed? What was his posture in prayer? Brenda. Yeah, kind of stands up. Thank you so much, God, that I am not like the adulterers and the extortioners and like this tax collector over here. Right? How does the tax collector pray? Julia. Totally. He's beating his chest. Doesn't even look up. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And who went home justified in this story? The tax collector. Why? Yeah, right. Rather than being demanding, we would say that he was humble. And it reminded me of what James says about God opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble. Here's a case study in that. When someone prays who's humble, they go home justified. Luke 19. Luke 19 begins the story of Zacchaeus, a story we know well. Uh, what was Zacchaeus's occupation? He was a tax collector, yeah, right? Taxes are bad enough to pay nowadays. It was worse back then. These people were traitors to Jewish people. They said, we'll side with the Romans and extort our own people and skim off the top so that we can pocket the money ourselves. You can imagine how the crowds felt about Zacchaeus. How did they react that Jesus was going to his house? Yeah, they grumble. Jesus is going to go eat with sinners? Come on. What evidence did Zacchaeus give of genuine conversion? Bonnie. Yeah, here's a man who has been changed. He gives half of his goods to the poor. If he robbed anyone, repaid it fourfold. This is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Genuine repentance is always accompanied by bearing fruit, and Zacchaeus bears that fruit. It's obvious his life has been transformed. And how does Jesus describe his mission then in verse 10? Julia. Yeah, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. People have identified this as the theme verse of Luke, 
and has been pointed out to me that one of Luke's like overarching themes is just this, that there are a lot of stories in Luke about Jesus interacting with Gentiles, Samaritans, women, sinners. Uh, Think about the woman who was a sinner who came and washed Jesus's feet with her hair, tax collectors, lepers, blind people, you name it. Jesus is interacting with all of these people who are probably on the fringe in society. And yet Luke 19.10 reminds us that that's what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost. It's not those who are well that are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Luke gives us a great just example of time and time and time again, Jesus coming to these lost people and them responding. Pretty cool. Second part of Luke 19. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, very reminiscent of like a coronation. People are shouting, saying praises to him. Some are cutting off branches and putting them on the street. Some are laying their own coats in the street. And how do the Pharisees respond to Jesus being hailed as king as he enters Jerusalem? Bella. Yeah. They're like, uh, Jesus, this praise you're receiving is unmerited. Quiet these people down. What is Jesus' reply? Joanne. Yeah, and so what did creation realize that the Pharisees did not? I'm sorry, Diane. Yes, Diane said, Jesus is Lord of all. Creation knew that the king was in their midst, and they would have cried out had people not been crying out. And it makes us long for the day when all of creation, ourselves included, will cry out and praise Jesus for his glory and his kingship, as Revelation talks about. Just an awesome passage of scripture. From Luke 20. I asked you to look at verse 47 from chapter 19 in preparation for this question. We're told in verse 47 that Jesus is teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And then almost immediately, Jesus launches into this parable about these wicked tenants who are in charge of a vineyard while the owner is gone, and the owner sends some messengers to him, and they beat some and stone some, and then he sends the son, thinks maybe they'll treat my son differently, but they kill the son. So who do the wicked tenants represent in this parable? Claire. Yeah, the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They know this parable Jesus told, it's about us. We're the wicked tenants. Who does the owner of this vineyard represent in the parable? Julia. God. And what will the owner do to those who killed his son? Destroy them and give that vineyard to another. And according to Matthew 21, 43 and Acts 28, 28, how is this parable ultimately fulfilled? How do we see this played out, this vineyard being taken away from them and given to another people? Yeah, 
The Gentiles have been included in God's plan of salvation. The Jews rejected, and it's been opened up to the Gentiles. And yeah, that should be our response when we read parables like this. For a lot of us, we are recipients or beneficiaries of this, that the gospel has been made available to Gentiles. All right, lastly, from Luke 20, Jesus has spent his day answering questions about taxes. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the other things he asked questions about. The resurrection, you know, whose wife will this lady be if she's married seven men? And Jesus poses a question of his own, which is pretty fascinating. Um, let's see. He, he then goes on to quote Psalm 110, verse 1, which I think is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. People love talking about Psalm 110 in the New Testament. And Jesus poses this question about the Christ, the Messiah. He says, guys, back in Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah his Lord. The verse goes something like this. You can see it there in verse 42. Jesus quotes Psalm 110. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord in the Old Testament is all caps, referring to God the Father. It's his divine name, Jehovah. Said to the second Lord is a reference to the Christ. So God saying to the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus says, how is it that the Christ is said to be a descendant of David, and yet David calls him his Lord. He's kind of playing off of this Jewish belief that descendants are inherently lesser or inferior to their parents. So for the Jewish people, there's a bit of a paradox. How can David call his descendant superior to him? Do you guys see that? Well, if David calls the Christ Lord, then who is greater? We know that's Jesus. Second question, if Jesus is both greater than David and also his physical descendant, then what does that teach us about the nature or identity of Christ? Julia. Yeah. And? Bonnie? Yes, exactly. He is the descendant of David, truly. Yes, he is a man. But in being greater than David, the greatest king of Israel, Jesus is also God. There's like this awesome just dual nature about Jesus that is being celebrated here. He's both human and God. And according to Hebrews 10, 12 and 13, when did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God like Psalm 110 anticipates? At what point did this happen? Hebrews tells us. Yes, Diane said, after he was crucified, he ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and is waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. So as I'm just thinking about this, Psalm 110, written a thousand years prior to Jesus' death, is already anticipating his resurrection. Pretty cool. The, the interconnectedness of Scripture is awesome. We're going to see that again this week uh, as we do some study ourselves. Let's pray and we'll be done. Lord, again, we're just grateful for what you've taught us this morning. Uh, please help us to remember uh, these parables as I reflect in my own life about uh, my perspective on money and what Scripture calls the unrighteous wealth that we accumulate in this life. Please show us how we can leverage it to make an impact in eternity 
and to do things that have eternal value. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.